You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, the Pikane, the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm the host for this episode, Josh Goldstein. I'm joined by my co-host, Gavin Cameron. Hi, Josh. And Maureen Hebert. Hi, Josh. Great to be in the studio with you again, Gavin and Maureen. In this episode, we're again probing the margins of the philosophy of violence. We'll be having a conversation about the relationship between violence, reality, and ideas, in the thought of an important but relatively unknown mid-20th century philosopher, Eric Vogelin. And joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, as well as our colleague, Barry Cooper. We're talking with Barry in person in the CJSW studio. Hello, Barry. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to have this opportunity to have a conversation and to work with you professionally. Barry and I have been on many student thesis examination committees and many committee work together, but we've never had a chance to talk as political philosophers in a professional setting like this. So it's a wonderful thing and really looking forward to it. As I just mentioned, Barry is a political philosopher and a professor of political science here at the University of Calgary, where he has been for just over four decades. His education stretches from Shawnigan Lake School on Vancouver Island to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and to a PhD at Duke University in North Carolina. Our listening audience may know Barry from his more public and political commentary, but he's also a prolific scholar with over 35 books translated, edited, or authored, many supported through major research grants from national and international funding agencies. Barry has been honored with the Conrad Adenauer Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Stiftung and a Killam Research Fellowship. He's been a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada since 1993. Through the decades, there are two threads running through Barry's very diverse work. One thread in Barry's work is the attempt to make sense of the world by making sense of how individuals and groups think about the world and their place in it, whether it be the response to COVID in Canada or how human communities lived and thought in the Stone Age. The second thread in Barry's writings is the place of the 20th century German-American political philosopher, Eric Vogelin. In just a moment, we'll turn to how Vogelin can help us think about modern political violence, whether in terrorism or the horror of genocide. But let's begin, as we always do, with our guests. Barry, can you tell us a bit about your origin story, how you started out here in Alberta and ended up back here in Alberta? as a political philosopher, and all the important stuff in between. All the important stuff in between, yes. 
Um, well, my dad's family uh, comes from Nanton, which is about 40 miles south of town. Um, his uh, grandfather homesteaded, and there's stories within my family that uh, my great-grandfather's uh, wife was a Zutina uh, woman. I've never uh, verified that by looking at, at uh, birth certificates, but it's part of the family lore in any case. Um, and I did, I was educated out in BC. Um, and at UBC, at, at the time, UBC was probably the, had the best political science department in, uh, in Canadian politics. Um, so I learned a lot of Canadian politics that still uh, stands me in good stead today. Um, and I, I went to Duke because my uh, honor su- supervisor there went to Duke, uh, a guy named Ed Black. So that's how I ended up um, in, uh, in North Carolina. But I, I changed my major from, from uh, Canadian and comparative to uh, political philosophy because of a, a very uh, good teacher there, John Hallowell, uh, who was a friend of Vogelin's. So I met mm-hmm. Vogelin as well ah. at that time. So it was, it was a very um, exciting uh, place to be. I mean, it was, there was nothing. There was no um, uh, interstate highway from Durham to either Washington or Atlanta. So you were stuck there with nothing but about five million <laughs> books in the libraries. I, mean, I had plenty of work to do. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, I taught for about 10 years um, in uh, Quebec and Ontario before I came, uh, came back to Alberta. Ah, okay. And uh, was there a, a reason that you moved from out east back home? Yeah, I hated Toronto. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Tony Perel uh, was the department head then. Uh, I'd known him. He was also a, a political philosopher. He's a Machiavelli scholar. Mm-hmm. And and uh, he, he I was in Vienna, actually. He phoned me in Vienna and said, would you like to come out to uh, audition for a job at Calgary? And I said, you bet. Um, so I came out for a weekend. Uh, Tom Halke, who's a, a dean at uh, UBC uh, in Kelowna, was in the in the class. It was a three ten class, and he said he, he could still remember the lecture that I gave. I completely forgot what it was. It was about he told me it was about Alexander the Great. I you <laughs> know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Tony Perel recruited me here. Oh, that's amazing! That's amazing. It's uh, it's been wonderful to have you in the department. I've been here. All of us have been here just a fraction of the time uh, time you have. But it's been uh, it's been wonderful to share our love of political philosophy together and to to offer the kinds of courses that we that we have now. One course that we haven't offered, as far as I can recall, is on Eric Vogelin and Barry. In our Oddities of Violence workshop, your contribution is to introduce us to Eric Vogelin and Eric Vogelin Eric Vogelin's philosophy of violence in in particular. And to help orient our readers, can you first give us a big picture of Eric Vogelin's thought? As a philosopher, what was he interested in and why? And then after, we'll get you to pivot to how he came to be interested in violence in particular as a, as a political philosopher. And I assume, given that Vogelin fled Vienna in 1938 with the German annexation of Austria, that it his experience of Nazism must be crucial to this second story of how violence came to be important to him. But but start us off with the big picture. Yeah, the big picture. He was a student of Hans Kelsen, and he started off as basically as a lawyer. Uh, Kelsen had 
uh, drafted the Austrian Constitution after World War One and was probably the most important uh, uh, jurist in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vogelin went to the United States in 1925 and 26 on a Laura Spellman uh, Rockefeller uh, exchange program, and he said that that he had a new world, intellectual world, open to him okay. that had nothing to do with all of the neo-Kantian debates uh, surrounding Kelsen's uh, uh, jurisprudence. Uh, so he said, when I got back to Germany, uh, Heidegger had just published uh, uh, Sign on Sight, and he said, it was like water off a duck's back. I, I'd moved on. <laughs> uh, and what happened in the rest of the 20s and into the 30s uh, you might say he was mugged by political reality. Um, he wrote a couple of books. In, he wrote one book on the United States in 1928, and then in 1933, he wrote two books on, on race, uh, one, the, the idea of race, and the other uh, called Race and State, um, because everybody was talking about it, uh, in, particularly in Germany. Uh, that got him onto the um, list of uh, people that the Nazis didn't much like. Uh, he was himself, he wasn't Jewish, uh, he was uh, sort of Lutheran, I guess. Um, and he stayed, in, he stayed in Vienna as a private, uh, privat docent, as a, you know, what, adjunct professor or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and um, after the uh, uh, Anschluss, after the uh, annexation in 1938, uh, he, had, he, he had written this book uh, called The Political Religions, and um, that I sort of uh, took part of the title with, with the book I did on terrorism. Um, and it came out in April of, uh, of 1938, which was a month after the Anschluss. Um, so he knew that he was not going to be staying in Austria for lo- very long. Uh, a few copies got out. Uh, one of them found its way to Thomas Mann's mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, study. And Mann wrote him a letter uh, telling him what he didn't like about it. So then a second edition came out uh, after uh, Vogelin left, and his, his leaving Vienna was also a real adventure. He, he made it up by the skin of his teeth. Mm. There were Gestapo people outside his, his uh, flat. Wow. Uh, and he, he spent, you know, as spies always do, they spent the afternoon in the movie theater and took the, uh, took the train to, <laughs> to uh, Zurich uh, that evening. But so anyway, he, he just uh, made it out. But um, in the second edition that was published in Stockholm, he gave uh, a, an answer to Thomas Mann that um, introduces one of the uh, themes that goes throughout his his work, uh, particularly with respect to uh, to violence. Uh, you, I'm sure you all know uh, who uh, uh, Herzog uh, Grinchmann was. Well, let's tell our readers who. Uh, uh, and if, if any of them don't, he was the guy that uh, assassinated a uh, Gestapo. Um, member in the Paris embassy named Ernst von Ruth, or von, yeah, von Ruth or von Roth. Um, and the next night or two days later after uh, this guy died, uh, Kristallnacht uh, was perpetrated in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Volkan wrote a preface in the second edition that said that, uh, that this guy basically did his duty by, by shooting this, mm. uh, this Gestapo um, and it's it's probably something that would be called uh, uh, what terrorism nowadays for sure. Um, you don't go around shooting government officials, even if they're Nazis. Uh, Bogan said this this was a perfectly understandable use mm. of 
pragmatic violence because he said uh, Jews in Vienna and in Germany had been treated um, as, they, as if they were not human. Uh, and if, if that's the way you're going to behave towards me, uh, I certainly have a duty to uh, shoot you. <laughs> that, was, that was the gist of, of his response to, uh, to Thomas Mann. Um, what I would call that is the kind of commonsensical way of understanding violence. Uh, and with, when, when Vogel came to write uh, a lot of his material that for which he's probably more famous, um, uh, starting with uh, a book, a five-volume book called Order and History, uh, he started off with, uh, with Egypt and Mesopotamia. And he made, he made a, an argument there and in uh, his history of political ideas that never was published that uh, all regimes have to use violence to defend themselves. Uh, to, to defense of the realm is what it, we call it in medieval philosophy. Uh, and that this was simply uh, a condition of acting politically. Uh, that stayed with him uh, throughout his, his career and it is a form of violence that uh, may be a kind of mortgage on the ethical purity of, of political regimes, but it's inescapable. That's a, that's a excellent, excellent story. The, can, can you tell us a little bit, there's, there's two interesting experiences that seem to be here. One is the experience of America as this new world that, that shakes him out of the now stale academic debate and the experience of, of Nazism. Was there any relationship between those, those two experiences? Did he see the Nazis in a new way because he had been, been to America? I think so. Um, one of the th one of the things that he learned in in America, particularly at his time at Wisconsin with the, uh, with Americanists there, uh, was the importance of common sense. Mm. As uh, uh, he learned a lot of other stuff w when he was in New England, but but their common sense uh, as the uh, foundation for political life uh, was was really important. And when he returned to uh, Germany, and this was still in the in the late twenties. So the Nazis were not really on the scene. Um, he maintained that he he uh, did a number of articles on uh, German politics of interest, you know, now to almost nobody, um, but they were very commonsensical. And all of the methodological debates that so uh, what beset uh, North American social science after the war, he just thought it was a waste of time. It was, you know, from Max Weber on, uh, he said, all this stuff is, has been settled. Uh, common sense from the uh, Scottish Enlightenment uh, mm -hmm. through to New England, through to the kind of generalities of American intellectual life, um, that's where you begin. And the, his America book was called On the Form of the American Mind or Geist, the American Spirit. Um, and it's all about that. So he was kind of inoculated uh, and certainly would not make the kind of mistakes that so many European scholars did uh, with respect to the Nazis. He said, these are bad people. That's where we got to begin. Not, you know, how, are, how does their uh, legal uh, order uh, comp compute with, say, the Weimar Republic? He said, this is not the point. Wow. This, this emphasis on common sense, from what, I, from what I understand, and what we'll try and get you to say a little bit more about as we 
lay out Vogelin's philosophy of violence is that we have this common sense violence, as you said, a pragmatic response to the needs to keep the state, the political community from being overwhelmed by enemies, opposing forces. And this contrasts, you say, with another conception of violence, which Vogelin calls magical. Mm-hmm. Can, can you elaborate then on what this idea of magical violence is, what it means, and how it differs from the common sense understanding of violence. Yeah, Vogelin used a number of different terms to describe this alternative one. Um, magic was a fairly late one. Uh, he, he began it by talking um, about the Old Testament, about particularly about uh, Deutero-Isaiah, uh, and the debates that he had with uh, the, uh, the king as to how they were going to deal with some invaders. And uh, you probably remember this uh, from your uh, time as a, as a dutiful uh, scholar as a young man. Uh, Isaiah basically said, you have to trust in God. Uh, God will take care of it. Uh, you, all that the Egyptians have are chariots and uh, an army. Mm-hmm. Uh, so trust in God. Um, fortunately, the king uh, threw Isaiah in jail uh, and didn't listen to him because uh, he knew that you also had to have chariots and, uh, and uh, infantry to deal with chariots and infantry, uh, that God was not going to uh, do it on his own. Uh, Vogel initially called that metastatic faith. Uh, and it's a term that, that he used uh, probably for about two years, and then he never used it again. He uh, used other terms that sort of have a, a, a resonance with it. But it means, basically, it means um, a kind of hyperfaith. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that you, as if you could compel God to defend the children of Israel. Uh, and uh, that's, that's, what Vogel, that's the way Vogelin read uh, this debate between Isaiah and the, and the king. Um, and that uh, this, there was something the matter with Isaiah. The, the king still had some common sense. But Isaiah was living in this um, imaginary uh, universe where he knew the will of God. Uh, and he could tell the king what God had in mind. Um, and the king said, I don't think so. Uh, there is the contrast. That was the, the first contrast that uh, between these two understandings of, uh, of violence that, uh, um, that Vogel developed. Uh, there are Christian versions of this as well. He developed a lot of these in a book, probably his most famous book called The New Science of Politics. Um, it came out in 1952. And the Christian version uh, initially had to do with the, the parousia, the, the second coming, mm-hmm. uh, and how you could speed it up. Uh, the, the latest, the, the longest uh, analysis in the new science is about, uh, is about the Puritan armies as being an angelic host. Uh, and and uh, uh, what uh, commonsensical analysts like Hooker uh, thought of that, which was not much, uh, they were not an angelic host, they were a, an army. Uh, and if you could think that you were part of an angelic host, uh, you could basically commit atrocities uh, without uh, having to worry that, uh, in fact, you would be um, held responsible for what were atrocities. These were not. These were all already God had forgiven you. Mm. Uh, that's a kind of, uh, 
what he later called magical uh, thinking or second reality thinking. Um, now, the other thing that comes with this that he, he, he mentioned from time to time is that there's also a kind of metastatic disappointment mm. when the world is not transformed. Uh, the world remains the way it is. Um, and he says, uh, you know, quite, I think, absolutely correctly, that in, in uh, Book 20 of the City of God, uh, St. Augustine deals with this question sort of theoretically uh, as well as can be done at any time. When he talks about what made the Roman Empire great, uh, it was their armies. Uh, what made them uh, succumb to uh, Alaric, the armies weren't any good anymore. <laughs> uh, it had nothing to do with the... With the uh, um, removal of the altar of victory from the from the Palatine Hill. It was a matter of military uh, competence. Um, that's commonsensical. Uh, so you know everybody, whether you're a, a pagan Roman, a, a Christian expecting the prophecy to come tomorrow, uh, or uh, uh, Isaiah, you could have these metastatic expectations, which he later discussed in terms of Gnosticism, uh, that would never come true. And you had to deal with that, too. So today, today between ideas of common sense and this metastatic faith, this magical belief, and I think Vogelin also uses the term second reality, today we, we have a tendency when we think about the kind of commitments that individuals have, that groups or communities have, we tend to think in terms of ideology, so common sense or ideological view. Now, I know you also teach an introductory course on political ideologies. So where does our term ideology fit, or where would Vogelin see our term ideology fitting in between common sense and this magical belief? Um. It depends how far you push the ideologist. Mm, okay, uh, and most of us are ideological in, in you know some some way or another. We're liberals or conservatives or socialists or whatever. Um, and I I tell the students in the class that that we should think of ideology as a convention. And so I go back to the difference between nomos and phusis in in Greek uh, philosophy. And can you tell our listeners what those words mean? Yeah, between nature and nature and convention. Um, and, and ideologies are uh, the modern version of conventions so that uh, we may not be able to escape them, but we shouldn't mistake them for being uh, truth. And, and they have assumptions that we have to interrogate. Um, and, you know, that's what you do when you are a political scientist. Uh, you raise questions. You look for the logic of an argument. Uh, you do an analysis. And the, the students eventually they come to get this, at least most of them do. Um, and I, I, I talk a bit about second realities uh, with Don Quixote, in fact. <laughs> and they they get that pretty quickly. You know, in this, the second, uh, what, uh, external trip of Don, Don Quixote, he has Sancho Panza with him, who is the, the Cervantes version of, of common sense. And, and Sancho then... Uh, he tells the Don, those are not uh, giants, those are windmills. And he says, no, no, they're, they're giants. And I say, oh, yeah, they're giants, because I have these transformers here that I can fix them and change them from windmills to giants. And I said, so now, I tell the students that now Sancho Panza is becoming 
um, inducted into the second reality mm. of, of uh, Don Quixote. Uh, and I explain why from, you know, what Cervantes says. And the students get it. You know, it's, uh, he says, yeah. You know, they say, yeah, you, you can see how you could live in this, in this world of imagination. Hmm. Um, and, I, I mean, that's, that's basically all it is, is a kind of a, uh, epistemological <laughs> statement. It's, it's, not, it's not really that hard. Ah, okay. No, this is this is really great. And, and before we turn it over to our co-host to extend the conversation uh, to to questions of terrorism and to to genocide, I just wanted to ask this this one this one last very general question: Is common sense always resistant to magical thinking, or is common sense always susceptible to magical thinking? Is there a movement that we have to be or that we should be careful of that common sense becomes ideological, becomes magical, or are they distinct enough? Each common sense is resistant to magical thinking and so on. It, it, common sense is pretty much resistant uh, if you can maintain it. Uh, and that's always, you're always tempted uh, towards a solution. To, to questions that have no solutions. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, everyone is all the time. Uh, your, your common sense can resist that, but uh, not always. <laughs> not always. Uh, and, uh, and then you can believe in, you know, anything. And that's, and that's the, uh, that, at least the way Vogel looks at it, that becomes the, um, uh, the capitulation to, to magic thinking. But he also says nobody is compelled to be an ideologist. Mm. Nobody is compelled to believe in magic. Um, and I, I sometimes I teach Macbeth in the in the in the Machiavelli course, and I and I do the same sort of thing there with the with the witches. You know, the, the, the act one, scene one, they're right there. And I once asked the class, "How many of you believe in witches?" And there was only one one kid that put up his hand, and he was a, an exchange student from uh, from Africa, and and so I asked him to explain what witches were, and he did, and uh, and I then said, well, how many of you believe in evil? And you know, more hands went up. Uh, so it's it's a question of how you symbolize these things. I think for a lot of for a lot of people, you don't do it magically, uh, because that just leads to uh, to confusion, and you can always explain. Uh, using your common sense, why why witches? You don't have to believe in witches, but but there's evil out there. That's great. Let's let's turn the conversation over to our co-host Gavin Cameron to look at the relationship between belief and terrorism. Thanks, Josh. So Barry, I mean, you've already talked about your book on terrorism, uh, new political religions, and um, one of the ways that you sort of have written about terrorism is to tie the ideas of Vogelin into the issue of, of terrorism. So could you just sort of put those two pieces together for our listeners in a way that they can sort of understand the argument that you make in, in your work? Well, I, could, I, can, uh, I can try. Um, one of the things that I was interested in when I, when I wrote that book uh, was how um, those who advocated ter terrorism uh, understood what they were doing, and and this uh, 
returns us to this question of, of second realities, uh, because one of the things that Vogelin said about it is that you're never entirely unaware that you're living in an imaginary world. Hmm. And with Am Shinrikyo, uh, but also with, with uh, Hezbollah, uh, the leaders, uh, Asahara, for example, uh, said that uh, he was going to Tupoa people. Now, poa is a term that comes from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it's, it's not an active verb. And he must have known that. It was a euphemism for murder. Mm-hmm. And he, he could not, not know that. Uh, in the Islamic uh, tradition, uh, particularly with Hezbollah, there was uh, a guy named uh, Fadlallah, who was a very important uh, uh, religious leader in, what, Lebanon or Syria? I can't remember. But uh, he invented one fine day the notion of self-martyrdom. Now, in Islam, there is no such thing as self-martyrdom. It's like self-sainthood if you're a Catholic. I'm just going to become a saint. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, to become a martyr or a saint, you have to go through a process. Uh, there has to be the equivalent of a devil's advocate saying this guy does not deserve to be a martyr. Uh, you know, he didn't do it for the glory of God. He did it for his own glory. Um, so you have, and certainly Allah knew that. Uh, so you had these uh, terrorist uh, what, leaders, I guess you might want to call them, um, who made things up and who knew they were making things up and did it anyway. And I found that very peculiar. Uh, certainly, I think it, that was true with bin Laden as well. Um, he must have known that what he was doing uh, was not sanctioned uh, by anything in the Quran. Okay, thank you. And incidentally, bin Laden had your book on his shelf, didn't he? So That's what I've heard. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's what I've heard. Uh, apparently, it was picked up by uh, SEAL Team 6 when they paid him a visit, but I've never seen it. I, I tried to uh, get access to it when I was in D.C. At, at the CIA library, but they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you, you've just sort of talked about um, a, a, a sort of particular version of of the belief that underpinned Hezbollah, and you've talked about Om Shinrikyo, and and so certainly uh, Om Shinrikyo's um, belief set was very complicated, and um, Shoko Asahara made all sorts of predictions that that clearly were not coming true. There was a so there was a clash between this sort of magical element, the second reality, and the reality that was sort of impinging on him, and so there's a crisis there, and 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 certainly in the context of of Om Shinrikyo, that the answer to that crisis is violence. Um, but we also have lots and lots of evidence of terrorism that is much more pragmatic, where it's instrumental, um, where the level of violence is being moderated for. Uh, as a sort of means of political coercion. So are we sort of saying that, that, that we can explain all terrorism using this clash between um, uh, second reality or magic and common sense reality? Or are we saying that they, they sort of coexist? Um, and if so, how do they coexist? 
Well, they, yeah, I think they, they coexist. Uh, they coexist in the same way that pragmatic violence can coexist with, with magical thinking, too. Mm. Um, I mean, with, with Am Shinrikyo, there, there was one of Asahara's uh, predictions actually came true. The big uh, earthquake at, uh, what, at Kyoto or someplace? They, Kobe. Kobe, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and so that gave him a lot of uh, credit. I mean, he obviously knew what he was talking about. Um, the idea of propaganda by deed is basically pragmatic violence, I, I would say. Um, and it's it's a way, uh, it's kind of like public relations. I mean, you, you know all of this way better than I do. It is, it is something that, even though it may horrify most of us uh, as being a gratuitous murder, um, for those to whom it appeals, it is pragmatic, it has an appeal, uh, and it is a mm-hmm. good recruiting device. Yep. So th- it's not magic there. Uh, there may be some people who think that because uh, Asahara predicted this earthquake, uh, he can predict uh, all of the other things that he predicted. <laughs> That's magic. And that may be something that um, would recruit people for whom magic is something that they believe in. Uh, I think a lot of people were recruited to uh, to Am Shinrikyo on, on that basis. Uh, I mean, some of the things that that were uh, their confessions to the various Japanese uh, authorities would suggest that they they were not living in a, the pragmatic, commonsensical world that the rest of us normally like to think we live in anyway. And, and this is precisely one of the problems with Am Shinrikyo as a, as a case, because it's right on the boundary between terrorism, certainly it's using terrorism as a tactic, but, but at the more sort of existential level, is it really a terrorist organization or is it actually a cult? Mm. And, and one of the mm. things that we're trying to sort of get at as we, if we talk about that, it is exactly what you've just discussed, sort of how, how its belief set um, affected the ability of its members to, to make judgments about what's real and, and what's not. And, and the role of Shoto Asahara clearly was important within that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, was, it was also abetted by uh, Japanese law yes. that made it possible for uh, someone like that to uh, gain a public following yes. uh, and very easily slip over into what we would call terrorism anyway. Yes, and, and in fact, Japanese law actively protected it as a religious organization. Yeah. That there's all sorts mm-hmm. of ways that, that sort of constitutional protections. So, yeah. so, so the overt religious element is actually a very important part of that mm-hmm. that story. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, since we're we're sort of talking a little bit about how we understand terrorism as a phenomenon. One of the sort of standard elements in traditional accounts, the traditional definitions of terrorism, is the idea of violence as a form of coercive bargaining. And if we take Vogelin's idea of, of this sort of clash between the magical and common sense reality, it's not clear in a, in actually I would say in many cases who or what is being coerced. Mm-hmm. So do you think you could sort of just explain how the coercive element of, of sort of standard definitions of terrorism might apply in the case of this sort of 
Vogel and the Count of Magic versus Common Sense Reality? Well, I think if you look, uh, he, would, he would say something along these lines, I, I, I think. If you look at the motivations for individuals who undertake terrorist actions, uh, you have to interrogate them not simply in terms of, of propaganda by deed or anything other uh, along those lines that is, is pragmatic. Um, there, it's, he would say something like this. You remember Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach? Probably not. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. And for Marx, the world was, was reality. That was it. There's no other world. Um, what you're trying to do pragmatically by using violence is to act within the world. Um, if you want to change the world, that's magic. That's magic. And, and sometimes um, the motivations of the people who recruit the, the grunts to do the really, you know, wet work um, are magic. They really think that they can change reality, uh, that they can change the world. And uh, I think this is certainly true in the old days with Marxists, uh, and it's certainly true today with, uh, uh, with say, Antifa, uh, with, uh, I'm sure, with some of the, the uh, Islamist terrorists that are still out there. Uh, if if Am Shinrikyo were still in business, it would probably be true uh, with, with them as well. Um, but that's a question of the motivations. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not simply behavior. And and this is this is where I would say that that Vogelin can actually add to the the uh, um, conventional terrorism studies um, community by by saying look at the motivations as well as the behavior, uh, and and that will tell you whether you're dealing with somebody uh, who's just a you know a killer or someone who's living in a in a dream world. Okay. Well, I think that nicely moves us towards the to, towards genocide. So I will turn it over to my colleague Maureen Hebert. Okay, um, I was going to say excellent, but of course, genocide very much not excellent. Um, what I want to talk about, sort of, to get into how Vogelin might help us understand specifically genocidal violence is to turn to his concept of friction. So we've already talked about the, you know, the idea that political actors can come to hold this second reality uh, conception of the world. Um, but because these views are, as you say, imaginary, they are bound to conflict with common sense reality or just plain everyday reality. And this is what Vogelin calls friction. So in the context of the second reality, violence is always, or sorry, is a way of, you know, eliminating this friction or trying to eliminate this friction. But as you note, the, this gulf between the second reality and actual reality still remains, as I understand it, even when this, this violence is applied. So let me ask you how this might relate to genocide, which is, is a kind of a particular form of very extreme violence when it takes a violent form. So let me just kind of propose this to you, and you can tell me what you think Vogelin might say about this. So since genocide involves the intent to destroy a targeted victim group in whole or in part as a group permanently, 
Is genocide a form of violence in which the perpetrator may actually be able, if successful, that is in eliminating the group, to eliminate the friction between the real world and the perpetrator's imaginary world once and for all? And the reason I'm asking you this is my own research into the Holocaust and with comparison to the uh, Khmer Rouge, who we talked about last week or last time, is that each one of them had a kind of what I call epic struggle conception of their relationship with their victims, that this struggle had been going on for decades or even centuries, and now the only way to finally bring it to an end was to use extreme physical violence and other forms of destruction to destroy these groups once and for all. Okay, I think there, there are uh, two ways to answer. The, the simplest one is to say that uh, people who think they are uh, invoking the apocalypse are invariably going to be disappointed. Uh, right. It, it ain't going to happen. Uh, the other is a, a little more specific, and it deals with um, with a, a dispute that Boglin and Hannah Arendt had. Mm. Uh, he reviewed her Origins of Totalitarianism in the uh, Review of Politics about 1952, I think, something like that. It was an early one anyway. And uh, she, you may remember, said that the, the uh, extermination camps were experiments in changing human nature. Correct, through total domination, the only places where there was total domination yeah. by these regimes. Yeah, and, and he said, uh, it's a, you know, a really good book, except when she said that, uh, because that means they are simply ways of um, destroying human beings. You can't change, nature is a, the way, the way he understood it was a solid philosophical Aristotelian concept. Uh, you couldn't change nature. Uh, this. We know from technology that seems not to be true anymore. You can turn cats into dogs if you want to. Um, then, uh, I I would say that Vogelin was, um, he and Hunter became good friends after that, uh, although he was he was very unhappy with with what she said in that book, uh, and he certainly praised her Eichmann book. Uh, she liked his Hitler and the Germans book, so that you know they were they were pals. Um, but what he didn't um, think about, I guess, is the best way of putting it at the time, was what I would call the Fackenheim Amendment. Mm -hmm. and, and that is that the Nazis created enemies in order to kill them. Now, if you, if you do that long enough, you're going to get everybody against you. Uh, and I, I don't know, I don't know enough about the Khmer Rouge to know if they were doing that too. Absolutely. Very much so. Even more than the Nazis, I would say. Well, uh, that seems to me to be a formula for uh, self-defeat. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's in the end, that there's the friction because you have this image of the, the world that doesn't correspond to the world. The world is not filled with your enemies. And yet if you, if you treat them like their enemies, it soon will be. Right. Uh, so you get more and more people uh, lined up against you. Um, I mean, that was um, that was Fackenheim's original argument uh, about what is so utterly perverse about totalitarian domination, is that it that it creates its own enemies in order to suppress them, or to kill them. Mm -hmm. um, and that, when I've when I've taught uh, Hannah Arendt and added uh, Fackenheim into the mix, um, the students have found that extremely difficult to understand. Like why would you, why would they do that? Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 that 
uh, I would say is that they were they still had the sufficient common sense to resist this kind of of uh, imaginative uh, second realities that appeals obviously to somebody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the kind of splits in genocide studies when we try to explain perpetrator behavior, which is the the bulk of what genocide studies is about, because it seems like such a crazy thing to do, uh, is a kind of division between those who suggest that genocidal perpetrators, especially at the elite level, are rational or strategic actors, right? That they basically are responding to material conditions in the real world, and then they choose to destroy a group as uh, a means of achieving some other end. So if you have revolutionaries, they calculate that they need to liquidate certain sectors of society because they are counter-revolutionary. They oppose the revolution. And then the other way of explaining it are those who suggest that there are more emotive reasons for why genocidal elites do what they do, right? So they come up with irrational policies grounded on, you know, equally irrational feelings about and conceptions of the victim group. So the perpetrators hate or they fear their victims and believe all sorts of illogical things about them, like, you know, like the world Jewish conspiracy. So when Vogelin talks about the second reality, does he see those who cleave to this conception of the world as irrational because they live, they believe rather in an imaginary world? Or are they making rational calculations when they use violence but they're doing it in an altered moral and strategic universe of their own making. I would say probably the second, hmm. uh, because um, of the capacity of human beings to fool themselves and know that they're fooling themselves, and yet do it anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very uh, strange. Uh, it's not a uh, the the term that he uses to to uh, describe this uh, state of your soul is. Um, is pneumopathology, and it's a term that Schelling used uh, in the in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, and it's not psychopathology. The the mm. the uh, Victorians had a, a term moral insanity mm-hmm. that approximately uh, translates what uh, what Schelling was talking about, uh, and it's what it means is that there's that you're it's not that you're you can't tell the difference between right and wrong, which mm-hmm. was presumably the problem with psychopaths. Uh, but you can, you can. Mm-hmm. But your soul is so screwed up that it doesn't matter. You know the difference between right and wrong, uh, but you do the, the wrong thing anyway, knowing, often knowing that you're going to be uh, defeated, and you still do it. Right. So this is sort of reflected in, say, um, Himmler's. Of speech or infamous speech in 1943 in October of that year to the SS men in Posen. You know, at, at partway through, he admits that they're exterminating the Jews, and he says that they they know they basically have to finish the job because they will be judged as murderers uh, by history because they all know that they're doing something wrong. Yeah, and then I mean, the a later statement by Goebbels: uh, history will know we were important because we're slamming the door on our way out. You know, I mean, that that's he wasn't crazy, mm-hmm. but he was there, there was something wrong with the guy. And it was it had to do with the with what Schelling called the perverseness in his soul, mm-hmm. not in his brains. One thing I wanted to just kind of maybe end my my line of questioning with is kind of a return to something you had said to Gavin. Um, 
when when Vogelin's trying to account for, I guess, you know, why in the language I'm using here, perpetrators do what they do, is he mostly thinking about elite actors, that is, you know, those who come up with, in this case, genocidal policies or other violent policies in the first place? Uh, or is he trying to also account for why frontline perpetrators, I think he used the word grunts <laughs> to describe them, uh, who inflict the actual violence and to account for why they do what they do? And, and the reason I'm asking this question is the kind of empirical evidence that's drawn from very extensive surveys with uh, people who have been convicted on genocide charges in places like Rwanda and the Holocaust, the farther down the food chain they are, the, the kind of wider variety of motivations they have for doing what they do and the less ideological they are. The higher somebody is up in the command structure, the more unified their motivations, justifications are, and the more highly ideological they are. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think that's empirically that I don't think anyone would want to dispute that. Mm -hmm. um, with ideology at the top, it really is something like Hannah Arendt's logic of an idea rather than some kind of uh, what I talk about in the ideology class as a kind of uh, convention. Uh, it, but that means that you have to have a, a commitment to logic mm -hmm. as something that's important. And probably the people farther down who are actually doing the, the, uh, the terrible activities uh, don't think that much about what they're doing. They, they, I think you're absolutely right, and I'm sure that you've got lots of scholarship that, mm -hmm. behind it that says that they, they do what they do for all kinds of uh, odd reasons. Uh, and one of the strangest things about uh, Arendt's book in on uh, on Eichmann is not you know it's not just the banality of evil that's become a kind of cliche. Mm -hmm. It's that that Eichmann was a social climber. Yes. Yes, that's, that's why. Absolutely. You know, in his own mind, that was probably why he was doing all of right. This the day that he went to join, or he ended up joining the SS, he was really going to join the Freemasons. Yeah, but it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. uh, so, so very often it, the banality is deals with the motivations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a it's a very strange um, aspect of political reality that that political scientists, by and large, uh, don't pay enough attention to. I'd say. Absolutely. Great. And following from my colleagues, I, I, I was struck by this hopefulness that seems to be present in Vogelin's thought, but I wasn't quite sure how to make sense of it. And so my final question to to you is, is there a, a sense in Vogelin of a moral world that will, even when pushed a little off balance, will will right itself when you say the world always is what it is and, and resists this magical thinking, ultimately defeats any attempts to change it. Is that a larger moral claim or vision that, that Vogelin has, or, or is it a different kind of understanding of the world? Uh, I would say it's uh, an understanding that um, that the bad guys uh, don't have much appeal mm. to to most people. Uh, that nobody's obliged to turn themselves into a, an ideologist or to believe in a second reality. And the and the term the term comes actually from some Austrian novelists. I mean, it's not a it's not a social science term. Um, and the and the people in it's from uh, uh, 
uh, Musil's uh, Man Without Qualities in, in particular, the, the people in that book uh, behave um, in a way that makes them miserable. And there's a similar term that, that Hannah Arendt uses in her, in her book on uh, Rahel von Hagen. Uh, I, I can't remember what it is exactly now, but, but there's a person that, uh, that Rahel von Hagen knew who was very much like Ulrich in Musil's book. Uh, and the, the logic in both of their uh, evocations of these kind of personalities is that they're, they're very unsatisfactory. So that there's something in what it means to be a human being that, that allows you to be attracted to, uh, to what's true. You know, I mean, this is hardly news, uh, you know, from anyone who's read Plato. <laughs> uh, and Vogelman has, you know, he's written a great deal on Plato. Um, so that that there's, you know, as you said, there might be some um, reason for hope, but it's not uh, groundless hope. It's it's based on observation of of experience of, of other human beings, real empiricism, uh, and it's there. That's perhaps the most hopeful way to end on a on a note of on a note of hope but but actually before we end if if there is a single insight from Vogelin on violence that you'd like to leave our our listeners with what would that be it would be that no one is obliged to give up their common sense and live in a world of their own idiosyncratic fantasies excellent advice <laughs> Thank you. Words very, to live by. Words to live by and hopefully not to die by. Thank you so much, Barry, for joining us. It's been a really wonderful conversation, and we really appreciate you being here in the studio with us. You're quite welcome. Thank you guys Thank for you. showing up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Barry will be here at the University of Calgary on June 9th to 10th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop made possible through the funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Barry's work on Vogelin and magical violence, drop by or listen live stream to the workshop. Details will be on our Oddities of Violence website. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas. Thank you, Alejandra. With support from the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we continue with our discussion of terrorism and the oddities of violence in the modern world. Then, we'll be looking at the odd case of pre-Holocaust assassinations of senior Nazi and fascist officials and politicians by Jews in 1930s Europe. Our guests then will be Or Honig from Tokyo International University in Japan, and your host will be Gavin Cameron. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.